morning to those of you at home. Uh, Why don't you grab a Bible or your phone and head to Mark chapter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue looking at... uh, at this wonderful, this wonderful gospel, uh, it's, it's, it's an astounding uh, gift, the gospel of Mark. All of scripture is, but I'm really, I'm really at least enjoying our journey through Mark. I uh, hope some of you are and finding it helpful and the Lord is speaking to us and shaping us as a church. Um, so you're head to Mark um, chapter 2. We're going to be looking from verse 13 <clears throat> this morning. Before we, before we get there... Um, depending on who you listen to, um, and I, I, I love these kinds of things. You hear sometimes radio DJs. I don't really like radio DJs. I'm just be honest. Like uh, I find them talk too much. Uh, like 702 radio. Like what's that? Is a talk 702 whatever? That for me is like pur- purgatory. It's like there's no music. It's just talking. It's just opinions. Wow, wow, wow. Like the whole day, I'm like just play the music and get stop talking. But every now and then they do these cool things where they say like. People phone and they say, like, the world is divided into people who are either this or this, or who like this or don't like it. You know, those things like, like, and they have all these polls and stuff. And I love that stuff. I like, I love the simplicity of just dividing the world into, like, people who, who, who like Marmite and people who don't. I mean, that's the easy one, isn't it? Yeah, like, some of you are like, yeah, I love Marmite. Others of you are like, it's disgusting. I'm in the disgusting, like, it's not a food source, it's, it's revolting. Uh, I have very strong opinions about everything. There's people who love cricket and people who think cricket is a waste of time, apparently. I haven't met any of them, and they don't come to our church, certainly. Uh, but there's people out there who don't like cricket. I heard a radio DJ the other day saying that she doesn't like cricket. Turn off, change station, done, cancelled. There's people who celebrate Valentine's Day. Like, they go all in, and there are other people who think it's a con. And it's a marketing bruise kind of thing. Very strong opinions either way. But we could do this the whole day, you know? Um, I'm sure you've probably got some better ones in your head. Like, uh, it'd actually be a fun exercise, but we're not here to do that this morning. But dividing the world into those kinds of categories is, is, is fun, and sometimes it's helpful. And, and sometimes we try and do that with faith. We try and divide people like good people, bad people, people who believe in Jesus, people who don't believe in Jesus, or Christian and other, or whatever, like easy categories. But in, in reality, it's not that simple, is it? Uh, the world is a bit more complex and complicated, and we are more complex and more complicated as people. Um, and so the, 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 that kind of two groupings kind of split doesn't really, doesn't really help us. And so what I want to do this morning is share with you, uh, as we look at this passage, uh, I've really been helped by Tim Keller, pastor from New York. He has, he has three groupings, which I found remarkably helpful in, in seeing and diagnosing things in my own heart and helping other people see where they are in relation to, to God. And it's religious, irreligious, and then the gospel. Uh, religious, irreligious, and the gospel. Those are the three categories he, he, he has. And we find all of them in this account that we're going to read today of the, of the calling of Matthew. So let's read together, and then we're going to dive uh, into this and explore it a bit more. From verse, from verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, the whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then, I just want to add there quickly, um, this is like a random commentary. I shouldn't do this while I'm reading, but I'm going to do it anyway. Like, again and again, you see through Mark, Jesus is busy, and it says what he was teaching them. He was teaching. There's such a primacy in the ministry of Jesus to teach people. 
You know, we often like to focus on the miracles and the healings and they're like, ooh, but again and again you see Mark describing Jesus as teaching them, teaching them. We have such a massive need to be taught by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, to be taught. We need our hearts and our minds recalibrated through teaching. This is actually the central thing of Jesus' ministry. Outside of what he does on the cross, he is a teacher. He's coming to reconfigure people's hearts and minds around the truth of who God is and who they are. He's teaching them. Verse 14, then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray as we dive into this. Father, we, as Quinn said, we come, we come to your word, we come under your word again and again, uh, and we acknowledge, we say it so frequently, Father, but it's from the depths of our hearts that we don't, we're not sharp enough, we're not intelligent enough to look into your word and see what we need to see outside of the work of the Holy Spirit teaching us and opening up our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see you more clearly and to see ourselves rightly. And so we ask for this miraculous work now of the Holy Spirit to teach us, to speak to us. We long so deeply to hear your voice, to be shaped by the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us through your word. And so we cry to you this morning for that, that we We'd have an encounter with the living God. You're here with us and we pray. Please speak to us now and shape us through the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm talking about irreligious and religious people as we start. Both religious and irreligious people have, have distorted views of God, of themselves, and of other people. Okay, we're going to... Uh, you, if you've been coming for a while, you know that most of my sermons are not very structured, sort of all over the place. I don't really like points too much. But this week, there's actually quite a few points. And you, if you're a note taker, you'll probably be rejoicing because it's actually a bit of structure to this message. We'll see how it goes. But anyway, so we're going to do this a couple times where we look at uh, this contrast between religious and irreligious people. And the first thing we're looking at um, is in the view of God. Then we're going to look at the view of themselves and in the view of others. Um, and, and the first thing that both religious and irreligious people share is a diminished view of God. They, they share a diminished view of God. They don't see God rightly. How does this affect religious people? Well, religious people um, diminish the holiness of God. They think that, that God is less holy than he actually is, less, less other, let me say that, less other than he is, and, and we can... We can please him, we can sort of get to him, get in right standing with him by a lot of our own effort, by doing things. And, and I'm not just talking about a Christian religious people. I'm talking about all the religions of the world. Most of the religions of the world are based, almost outside of Christianity, are based on what you have to do. You have to do a whole bunch of things in order to be right with, with that God. 
You have to pray a certain amount of times. You have to go to certain places. You have to give things. You have to do things. You have to not do things. It's all based on, on that um, law and merit kind of system. And, and you might be thinking of people, I want you as we go through today to think about people that you know. I mean, it's normally easy for us, you know, because we're all sort of pharisaical, all of us, like, oh, yeah, I know lots of religious people. Oh, this is easy, Doug. Like, half my family, all of my colleagues, you know, my neighbor, definitely religious, very religious person kind of thing. Like, but, and I'm going to say this a few times because it warrants repeating, that you'll find parts of yourself in all of these. So that's the sobering thing of this morning, is that there's parts of religious in you, there's parts of irreligion in you, and if you're a follower of Jesus, hopefully there's more of the gospel of grace in you. But there's still parts of these, and so we can easily identify sometimes with religious people. Here in this account, the Pharisees are the religious ones. Pharisees were, um, it says they're scribes, it's, like a, it's, like, it's almost like a political sect kind of thing at the time, and the big deal for them was adherence to the law, doing the right things. And they were in right standing with God because you did these things and you didn't do these things. And they were moral watchdogs. They wanted to let everyone know, hey, you're either on the team or you're off the team based on what you did. And some of us like that. Some of you A-types, that's what you like. And, and, and in a religious sense, like if you keep the rules, then you feel better about yourself and you can easily point out the others who aren't keeping the rules, you know? Uh, it's like, no, 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 no. And then obviously we have a sense of self-righteousness because we keep the rules better than them and that's how the system works and it just keeps going and going and going and we end up in a massive hole in a heap on the ground, as it were, in terms of a life-giving relationship with Jesus. So that's how religious people diminish God. They just notch his holiness down a few levels and think that by our own effort, you can actually get there. If you just do the right things, you can get there. How do irreligious people diminish uh, have a dim diminished view of God? Well, if they even acknowledge that God exists, which is one of the first things, is that they just, they just say God doesn't exist. That's the easiest thing. It's just like, there is no God. There is no God. This is all just, you know, I mean, just bang, and here we are. Um, I mean, they have people of great faith. It went bang, and here we are, uh, and everything just evolved like this, and it's just, it's just happening, and there's no one here to tell us what to do. We're just bumbling our own way through, and let's just figure it all out kind of thing. There is... There is no God, so live however you want, kind of thing. And so they throw God uh, off to the side, there is no God. Or, or they see God, they diminish God, and they see his, his, his commands and his instructions as, as a limitation on freedom. As a limitation on freedom. Um, I've got a, a, a lot of my non-Christian friends who like that phrase, like, I don't do religion. I don't, I don't do religion. Um, I don't want that kind of control over my life. It's like Christianity is a straitjacket. If you like rules, that's cool for you, Doug, you know, and gives your life some structure and stuff, but we don't want that kind of restraint. Uh, and, and it's amazing our perspective is different. And, and, you know, maybe before you became a Christian, maybe that was your view of Christianity. It's just all about rules and laws and things that you don't get to do. And maybe, maybe by the grace of God, as you became a Christian, you realized that your perspective was wrong and that God's Laws and restrictions are life-giving, not life-limiting. Somebody say amen. Did that happen to anyone? I hope so. It's amazing our perspective changes. Uh, perspective is such a massive thing. It's a gift from God how, how it changes. Um, I, was, I was down in Cape Town for a couple of the church's wedding uh, last weekend. And uh, when we're flying back, 
uh, on Sunday morning, uh, as we were coming into Joburg, I don't know if the pilot thought that the flight had been too boring, or he's just had a bad day, or no coffee or something, but yuh, this egg decided we were going to do some adventurous flying coming in. There was no clouds. I couldn't see a single cloud, so I don't know what the turbulence was. I'm not very clued up on those things, so maybe there was turbulence. But you, that plane was hoing all over the sky. And I was sitting next to a lady next to, <laughs> next to me. Man, this poor lady was white-knuckling her way there. Her eyes were, I could have led her to Jesus on the spot right there. would have been the easiest entry into the kingdom. She was like wide-eyed with terror. Uh, I mean, it wasn't the worst life, but it, it was pretty bumpy. She is holding on for dear life. She's just looking at me. She's just terrified. I can hear in the back of the plane. Every time the plane, you know, it's like the roller coaster when it dips out the sky and your stomach is up in your ears there, kind of that feeling. There's many of those. Every single time that happens, there's a bunch of kids in the back of the plane going, Wee! Wee! And I'm thinking, these kids are thinking, yes, what a lack of flight. This is the, why didn't you do this the whole way, but what's this? Lame flying. Woo, let's get some more action going. The kids are loving this. I can't even imagine when they get on the ground, they're going to debrief the flight and think, yes, that was the most fun ever. This poor lady is thinking, I'm taking the train next time. You know, I'm never going flying with whoever that airline was again. Perspective is it radically affects how you experience things. And your perspective of whether God has laws that are restrictive and burdensome or whether they are life-giving and helpful will radically change the way that you live and the way that you even approach God. And irreligious people often shake that off. They diminish God by diminishing the character and the nature of who he is. They diminish his, his love for his creation. They think that this God, if they even acknowledge he exists, gave us all of these things and then put rules over us to just kill all of our fun and notch his love down uh, quite a lot. The second um, area I want to look at is an elevated view of themselves. Both religious and irreligious people have an elevated view of of themselves. How does this work for religious people? Well, religious people feel like they're pretty good people. You know, they're, they're not that far off, that they're good, they're moral people. Uh, you see this again and again uh, in the scriptures. There's lots of examples. Jesus you know, interacted with that rich young ruler, and he says, yeah, what must I do to, to follow you? And he says, well, and he lists the, the, the last five of the commandments, and he says, well, I've kept all of those since my youth, which is nonsense. You know? We're not commandment-keeping people. We're commandment-breaking people. And if our perspective is that, oh, you know, most of what God has asked us to do, we do. We, we keep it. We're, we're largely good people, Maybe we need a little bit of help. And I think that's, to be honest, that's a view most of us have of ourselves. And most of the world have is that they're actually pretty good people. And they maybe acknowledge a little bit off, but not way off. Not way off. Essentially good people. If you ask people, go and do this. Ask people. Ask people who are believers or unbelievers in Jesus. Ask them, what is your view of people? Are people inherently good or inherently bad? And I'm, oh, you'll almost always get the view that people are inherently good. And we just sort of lose our way a little bit. But people are inherently good. And that, that's, we like to think of that of ourselves. Religious people are, are misguided in uh, that, that view and in our, our, sorry, our view of our ability to accomplish and keep all of God's laws. Overestimation of ourselves. Irreligious people uh, are also misguided because they think they know better. This is how it works. Irreligious people have a misguided view of themselves because they think they know better what they need for their life. 
It's like, okay, God, I see what you, the way you would want me to live. Yeah, I've got a better idea. My wisdom supersedes yours. These things I'm going to do, and these things I'm going to allow. My wisdom exceeds your loving instruction for me. They also think, and have a misguided view of themselves, that they think that living in a way that the Bible describes as throwing off restraint, that is such a phrase. It says they throw off restraint. It says if you throw off restraint, you think that your sin, living like that, will not harm you and not harm others. That's a misguided understanding and diminished, distorted view of yourself, that you think that if you live having thrown off restraint, that you're not going to damage yourself. That sin is not going to hurt you and not going to hurt others. If you just live the way that you want, that it's going to be a good thing. And it's, it's not. It's misguided. The third, uh, the third area is others. So we've spoken about how they view God, how they view themselves, how they view others. And I've described it like they have a comparative view of others. Religious and irreligious people have a comparative view of others. You see, if the, if the world is about keeping laws and rules and stuff and measuring yourself on a totem pole, then everything becomes, uh, maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person. Okay, okay, yeah, Doug, stop, stop banging on about this. I know I'm not perfect, but you must meet some of the other people I know. I'm not like them. And so you feel righteous. Remember that prayer of that Pharisee in Luke 18, the parable Jesus tells? I'll read it for us. It says, he also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's so much in that. I don't want to preach two different passages kind of thing, but that passage, there's so much in that. You know, trotting out all the stuff that we've done, all the good things. Fast twice a week. How many of you fast twice a week? Give a tenth of everything. When you get into this religious moral keeping, you need to keep adding stuff to it because you need to keep getting ahead of everybody else. So it's never enough. You have to fast three times a week if you know somebody who fasts twice a week. They give a tenth. You've got to give 15. You know, like, that's a competition there. Because you think that you accomplish by observance of laws and rules. Jesus very plainly puts it, the one goes home justified and the other doesn't. But that prayer there, thank you God, I'm not like this guy. And we, we, we won't be that obnoxious to say that out loud, will we? I mean, I don't think I've ever prayed that, thank you God, I'm not like whatever. But man, in my heart a million times, I've thought it and dwelt there. Thank you God that I'm not like them. Thank you God that I don't sin in the same way as those people. I'm better than them because I sin differently. And we do that all the time. That's the nature of religion, is that we measure ourselves, we're comparative. And you know, there you see it in the story, uh, these, these Pharisees, and they're looking at this dinner party happening with Jesus and Matthew and all of his mates. He's invited all the tax collectors and sinners to his house. And the Pharisees, they just can't handle this. This is just offsides for them. 
It can't happen. And so what's the question? Why is Jesus, why is your boss eating with these people? Does he not know? Does he not care? There's got to be a good reason. Because surely, if he had half a brain, he wouldn't be hanging out with this crowd. You know, the, these people are sinners and tax collectors. This is the lowest of the low. When you're a law keeper, there are certain people that you can hang out with, and then there's a whole bunch of others you can't. Because they dent your religious efforts. They may defile you. That's, that's what I think those Pharisees would have preferred. I think two courses of action. They would have either, this is how they would have wanted Jesus to respond. Either they would have wanted him to shun the sinners. So send them all home. Don't let them defile you. You can't get too close to them because the effect is going to be that they're going to defile you, Jesus. And let me just pause on this. For, for us, when we lapse into religion, we can easily go in this direction. There are people that we don't want to hang out with because we're worried they're going to defile us. That somehow our righteous standing before God as believers will get affected by the people you hang out with. And so there's people that you have to keep at an arm's length. You can't get close enough to them to love them because we're worried that, like Pharisees, they're going to defile. Another option, probably the preferable one for the Pharisees, would be just call them all out. Well done, Jesus, on getting them all together for a dinner party. Now you've got them where you need them. Now let them know. Let them, and this is it's conspicuous absence in this account, isn't it? Can you see the thing that's missing here? Is Jesus calling everyone out at the dinner party? Thank you all for coming tonight. I just want to let you all know that you're all going to the hotspot. You know, a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. Repent now. It's not that Jesus doesn't call people to repentance. It's not that at all. And you see in the story, Jesus comes, we'll talk about it now, Jesus comes to a tax collector and tells him to follow him. And in the following, in the responding, he leaves behind his old life. He leaves behind all of his old life and he follows Jesus at great cost to himself. Following Jesus does not come without cost. It doesn't come without repentance, without change. But it's not like every single dinner party. You need to sit the people down and let them know. And religious people like to do that. They like to point out what's wrong with everyone. And there's something in our hearts where we, it's difficult to love people if you're always judging them and finding fault with them. Now, as I say that, some of you are looking at me thinking, yeah, Doug, I would never do that. Never, ever. That's not the culture of our age. We just don't call people out. And to you, I would say amen. We have gone from that end to that end. And now we never call anyone out. You can't say a single thing about how anyone else lives because they'll cancel you. That's a new favorite um, pastime we have in the world, canceling people. They'll, they'll just cut you out of their life. If you ever call them to any kind of change or repentance. And some Christians are so terrified of losing relationship with people that they will never open their mouth. They'll never open their mouth in loving correction to the way anyone is living. Because you're so terrified of being canceled, of being cut out kind of thing. And what that then does is it affects our obedience and our witness and our faithful following of Jesus. Because Jesus is both of these things. Somehow he's able to be with at a dinner party. And I think he's actually probably enjoying himself. And I don't think this is heresy. I think Jesus was enjoying the dinner party with the tax collectors and sinners. And he's not crapping them all out there. But he does. And his whole life, his whole ministry calls people to change and faithful following of him. Somehow Jesus manages to walk that middle line where he's able to be in the presence of the vilest of sinners, as it were, 
and be accepted by them. They need a kick in him out, running him out of town. You have that sometimes, eh? You tell people you're a Christian, they're like, that's cool, thank you very much. Uh, I was laughing with somebody, they were asking me how my flight was, you know, these flights, and I said, no, nah, I don't worry about flying anymore. Uh, conversations, you get people who don't want them, uh, anyone talking to them on the plane anymore. And these days, you know, everyone's got a mask on, it's all a bit weird. But I've discovered a while ago, the easiest thing is, when you don't want anyone to talk to you, you just say, hey, what do you do, what do you do? I'm a pastor, here we go, thank you very much. Uh, I'm done. You just put my AirPods in and uh, be peaceful. You know, no one ever wants to talk to a pastor. They're like, oh, hell, what are we going to talk about? You know, I don't have a Bible. <laughs> you know? And, if, and you, if anyone does want to talk to a pastor, they're normally going to go sideways properly. There's some uh, information for you. But, uh, yeah, I'm losing my way here, wondering. <laughs> Calling them out. Calling them out. We need to restrain ourselves. We need to restrain ourselves and follow the way of Jesus where we can be amongst the tax collectors and sinners share our life together with them. And our lives and our words call them to faithful following of Jesus. We're not the moral police. But we're also not afraid to interact and be seen with anyone just like Jesus. How do irreligious people succumb to the same thing? Well, they succumb to pride. They succumb to pride in this area because they're not like others. They don't do religion. They don't need a crutch. They're not like those people who need a crutch or under the thumb. They're not sheeple. Have you heard that word? They're not sheep people. Sheeple. You know? Just following. They've got brains. They've got minds. They can think for themselves. They're liberated. They're progressive. They're not archaic, conservative, stuck in the muds like us who follow Jesus. You know, they're free. They've cast off restraint. Look at them living their best lives now. They're so proud of themselves. They lapse into, into pride so, so quickly, so easily in their delusion of, of, of seeming freedom. They're actually enslaved. And very, very quickly, what happens to irreligious people in this is that they judge other people who don't share in the same moral relativism that they do. Are you tracking with me? They judge other people who, don't, who aren't as enlightened, who aren't as accepting, as welcoming, as everything goes, whatever. They'll judge you. Christians are supposedly the judgy people, but just get around a few people who've thrown off restraint and religion and free, living free lives and stuff and see how judgy they are to anyone who doesn't see the world they do, the way they, they do. They will exclude you. Like I said, they will cancel you. They will judge you. They'll have that refrain, we don't need anyone to tell us how to live our lives. Very proud, wrapped up in their judging of others. And in the end, what happens is that both religious and irreligious people end up missing Jesus. They end up missing Jesus. Religious people miss Jesus because they go on the path of self-reliance and they think they can get to God through their own effort. And irreligious people end up missing Jesus because in the exercising of their freedom, supposed freedom, they don't want him. Religious people think they don't need him. Irreligious people don't want him. And they both miss Jesus and end up with a Christless religion or irreligion. And I've painted uh, polarizing extremes here, but like I said, there are elements of that in, in our hearts. And as you're listening, maybe you think, oh, I, I veer and I lean. Sometimes I find little bits of that in, in, in my life in different ways. And the gospel of grace is something completely and altogether different. 
it's completely and all together different. Think of this account with Matthew with me. Jesus comes to a tax collector and he calls him to follow him. Now, this is not like calling again to SARS and calling, uh, what's his name, Mr. Kizveta or one of the SARS commissioners, follow me. You know, it's not the same thing. Don't, don't lump SARS with tax collectors together. Back then, tax collectors were looked down on by almost the entire nation. These guys were sellouts. They sold out their own people. And I suppose our history uh, in South Africa, when you say the term sellout, it's got a lot of weight and baggage to it, and there's probably a lot of connection and stuff in our, in our history around there. But these guys were Jewish people who had one bad bid. So the, the Romans would put out to auction, they divided the whole country up and put out to auction the the ability to collect taxes in different parts, and you you'd bid for it, and you win that bid, and then you facilitate the, the collecting of taxes, and Rome have a stipulated amount, like, look, we need this much in, and the tax collector is free to add on whatever they wanted above that and pocket that kind of thing. And so they stole from their own people. They were viewed as absolute traitors by their own people. They were loathed and despised by people, and they enriched themselves at the cost of their own people. And, I mean, they, they were hated by people. There were, I mean, there's, there's, there's um, things brought into law around how people had to relate to tax collectors, really ostracizing them. They defiled your house, it made it ceremonially unclean. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. They really had no time for them. If you're going to pick a team of people to follow you and to do ministry with, you know, and to advance your kingdom a la Jesus, you know, a tax collector is at the back of the queue right there with prostitutes and all those other you know, religious lowlifes according to the society. Here comes Jesus up to Matthew. It's hard for... If you've watched... One thing I can commend to you is if you haven't watched it yet, watch The Chosen. It's a series on YouTube. You can find it. It's free. This will help bring these accounts to life. It's one of the best visual representations I've seen of disciples following Jesus. It's amazing. It's called The Chosen. They've just finished filming season two, which is going to come out, I think, later this year. Uh, but anyway, go and watch it. Jesus comes up to Matthew. Now there's a crowd of people around, and he just looks at him, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He responds immediately. Responds immediately. I, it's, hard to, it's hard to have a modern equivalent of what Matthew is. Uh, one guy that I was reading said, a modern equivalent could easily be a human trafficker. Matthew was not a good guy. He wasn't a victim. He wasn't a victim. He, he was the one taking from his own people and, and sub- leeching off them and using them. He's not a good guy. God changes him, and we get a gospel out of him. Matthew's gospel we get from Matthew. But at this point, he's not a good guy. I don't think he's like, oh, like a tax collector, just an interesting job. No, no, he's a bad dude. And one guy, one commentator said, a modern equivalent could easily be a human trafficker just using people. That kind of equivalent in our minds is like you would never pick a human trafficker uh, to join any kind of charitable organization. So this is Matthew, marches up to Matthew, Matthew leaves everything and follows him. And the people looking left and right must have thought, what on earth are you doing, Jesus? Calling a taxi. So that's how the Pharisees lose their mind later on. They're just like, what on earth is, is Jesus doing? Now he's not able to call this one oak to, to follow him. He's now at his house. They're having a big party with him and all of his mates and all the other sinners there. What is, what is going on here? It's, 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 it's shocking for us. 
It's shocking, and it needs to shock us as well that Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. So let me ask you the question, why does Jesus call Matthew? Why does Jesus call Matthew? Here's a simple answer. I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't think Matthew, we have no idea that Matthew had expressed any interest. You have to assume that he sort of maybe had seen Jesus or known something about him in order to drop everything and follow him. But why did Jesus call Matthew? I don't know. All I do know is what the rest of Scripture will say about why Jesus called Matthew. This is what the rest of Scripture says about why Jesus would have called Levi, son of Alphaeus, also known as Matthew. Romans 9, verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That is why Jesus chose Matthew, because it's got nothing to do with human desire or effort. It's not like Matthew is like, pick me, coach, or Matthew doing anything. It's because of God's mercy. This is God speaking, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Listen to Paul's Words in 1 Timothy chapter 1 from verse 15. This, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Why did Jesus choose Matthew? For another example of his extraordinary patience. So that Jesus would be glorified. There would be nothing that we would sing Matthew's praises for eternity. That we would look at Jesus and say, we have no idea why you did it, but you did. And if you did it to him, you can call us. And it's not about us. It's all about you. What does Jesus say again and again? You didn't choose me, but I chose you. If you, can, if you can think of any reason this morning why Jesus would choose you, you don't understand the gospel. Let me say that again. If you can think of a reason why Jesus would choose you, you have not fully understood the gospel. Jesus didn't choose you because you're a friendly person and he could use you in the kingdom on the welcoming team because you have such a sparkly personality. That's not why he chose you. He didn't choose you because all of your life you've been largely a good person and all of that goodness can just get brought into the kingdom and the church is like amazing. He didn't choose you because you were miles away from God and you would have a cool story to tell. He didn't choose you for any reason outside of his mercy. And he had compassion on you for reasons that he knows and so that he could use your life as a demonstration to others of his unending patience. And his amazing glory. And allow others to see, look, if he could choose you, I'm sure you can choose me. That's why the calling of Matthew is there. That's why Jesus gets a tax collector onto his team. So that we would know forever, hey man, if he's willing to call tax collectors human traffickers and change their hearts and bring them onto the team, yeah, he can call you. But the emphasis, the focus of this is that it's his choice. It's his mercy. There's nothing in us that makes us choosable. See, when we understand 
the gospel, it leads to a change in those views of God and of ourselves and others. It expands our view of God. We, we have an understanding of both of his holiness and his grace. Both his holiness and his grace. We realize that we can never get there, but that he's come to us. And it, just, it should blow your mind and your heart. Say, thank you, God. I could never get there. But you have. You have come to me. And you have poured out grace on me. There is, there's no other God like you. There's no religion. There's no system of thought. There's no worldview that encourages us with a message like this. The gospel of grace is completely different to everything else. It brings about a more truthful view um, of ourselves. That we're both desperately needy and incredibly loved. And I hope this morning, as you sit here, whether you're a believer or not, that you, you sense that in, 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 in a new way this morning, how desperately needy but incredibly loved you are by God. What does Jesus say at the end of this? He says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. You put your hand up if you're sick and a sinner, you get the attention of Jesus. You put your hand up if you're righteous and well, you have no need of the physician, of the doctor, of the healer, of the saviour, Jesus. And it changes our view of other people. The gospel changes our view of other people. You realise that if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would be nowhere. You wouldn't know him. You wouldn't know him. It changes your view of yourself uh, because you have now had a heart that's transformed by God and you're empowered with new power that you never had. You can live differently. It's not about you having to do a whole bunch of things to get right with God. It's that God changes your heart and slowly but surely you live out of a new set of affections to please God and your life looks different week after week, month after month, year after year. And sometimes, I'll be honest, the progress is slow and staggered and backwards and forwards and meanders. But you do look different over time because you're living out of a transformed heart and you're empowered by the Spirit that changes everything. And then as we go into the world and we look at others, we see them with different eyes. We see them with Christ-centered love. You can't love people if you're judging them. It's impossible. If you judge people, you cannot love them. And so you have to move out of the world of law and religion and irreligion and live in the land of grace where you, where you realize that you're the first recipient and the one most in need still. And then we can love other people. And we're not always just hammering them about their sin. We can genuinely love them and feel brokenhearted over their lostness and over the way sin has devastated them and point them to the one who's helped us. That's all we do. So we're nothing, don't look at my life, it's not perfect, it's going to disappoint you, but man, let me introduce you, let me point you to the one who has changed my heart and totally transformed my life and is still doing that. We're no longer judging, we're not measuring our holiness against the holiness of others, we've measured our holiness against Jesus and we realize we came up short and we needed grace to transform us. And so we stop judging people, we start with this sideways comparison of like I'm better than you, I'm worse than you. We can go out into the world and love people probably one of the worst reps that Christians have is that we're judgy, better than. Imagine this, the gospel gets a hold of your heart every morning and you run out into the world full of the astonishing grace of God washed over your life in new ways again, just to love people and to point them to the one 
who's loved you in the same way. Tim Keller says this, religion stresses holiness over grace. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. May God help us to be those kinds of people. Freedom through grace that leads to holiness. God's not going to leave your life the way it is. He's going to change us. But it starts with freedom through grace and it moves towards holiness. Let's pray as we prepare to share in communion and worship God uh, together. Yeah, Father, we, we're grateful this morning for uh, this reminder in your word that there's nothing about us, there's nothing in us that makes us um, choosable or, or lovable to you except that we're made in your image and that you, you, um, you, you created us and, and you, you chose to set your affection on us. And we want to pray that you would... Um, you would forgive us, Father, um, again this morning for the ways in which we have we've wandered down the roads of religion and irreligion. We have, we have we've lied to ourselves and believed lies that it's all about how we live and what we do. And we've, we've wandered away from the gospel and we've tried to impress you with law-keeping and rule-keeping. Or we've thrown off r- restraint and we've We've maybe tried law-keeping and realized we're not very good at it, so we've gone in the other direction. and We've avoided your holiness. We've downplayed your holiness and your righteousness, and we've got ourselves into all kinds of a mess. And we want to come to you, Jesus, again this morning. You're the one who, who calls us to grace. You're the one who speaks grace over us, who offers us a completely new way to live. And as we come to worship you through communion this morning. We want to remind ourselves that all of this is because of, because of the cross. Jesus, it's because you were willing to give your life in our place for our sin, that you would take our sin and you would give us your righteousness so that forever we would be yours. And we wouldn't have to go um, through this endless sort of hamster wheel of trying to perform and win your affection, that we would be a people who could rest in your complete salvation. We could rest in this word spoken over us that we are made clean, we are made righteous, we are justified, we are yours. Please help us this morning, Father, search our hearts where there's still uh, traces of religion and irreligion and draw us deeper into a deeper understanding and experience of the gospel of grace. Um, Jesus, you are the, the gospel of grace. And so we want to pray that you would fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds on you this morning. That for anyone who's listening this morning or who's here who's never encountered this, who's still stuck in either religion or irreligion, that they would hear this offer of salvation in you, Jesus, and abandon all um, other ways of living, other worldviews, other paths to try and get right with you, realize that you're calling them back from wandering away and come and drink deep of the gospel of grace. 
Thank you, for Father, for not treating us as our sins deserve, but lavishing kindness upon kindness upon kindness on us. Some of us may have heard this so many times, we've become so overly familiar with it. And pray that you would remind us again this morning of your holiness and of our deep need, and yet of the power of the gospel that has transformed us. And that joy would be ours, as Quint was praying earlier, joy would be ours this morning. Because we realize afresh through the work of the Spirit who we are in you. Just exactly what you have done that we were undeserving of. The power and the completeness of it. Thank you, Father. We worship you this morning in Jesus' name.